This message comes to you from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon, where we are committed to living like Jesus and sharing His love. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. We are um, in a series called What Matters Most, and uh, we've tried to lay the foundation every week answering the basic question, answering the question, what matters most? And for us in this series, the word values, living by values, and we've defined that. Here's my definition, what matters most, finding and choosing biblical proven values. I say it again, I'm not teaching from a um, background of just choose your values. I'm teaching from a biblical background and a biblical message. And so it's narrowed to the scripture because I'm presenting it from that angle, proven values upon which I can build my life. Knowing my life will have purpose, significance, and legacy. Everybody wants those three things, there's no doubt about it. Saved, unsaved, young, old. Everybody would like to think and believe that their, their life has purpose. There's a lot to be said about that. Significance. Significance is different than success. You can have success, not have significance. Legacy is when you lay your whole life out right and pass something on. Doesn't mean much when you're young, but the older you get, you think about what you're leaving behind and who you're leaving it to and what actually are you leaving with that person or people. Of course, with family, that's a big deal, but it's beyond that as a Christian, as you leave things to other people. What's your legacy? Well, legacy is tested by time and the time element that I'm talking about is the values that Jesus pours out and says, look, if you build your life on these things, you're going to have significance, you're going to have legacy, you're going to live with purpose. Well, of course, I should look at that and, and understand that that's how I want to build. Values is simply defined as critically important biblical, biblical, biblical core beliefs. Everybody has them. Even if you don't think you have core beliefs, you have core beliefs. Everybody believes something. And even if it's not deep, it's what you live out. Just ask yourself, what do I live out? Because whatever you live out, that's what you believe. So your core beliefs, for us, they should be biblical. We should have some core beliefs that are biblical, that we never violate. They're non-negotiable. That's how we live. This is our answer for these particular issues of life. They are biblical core beliefs that drive our life and remain consistent in any circumstance. And I, I've said this over and over just to be very simple and for a person to put on their dipstick and understand it. Uh, wherever you are the most inconsistent, that's where you have the least values. So if you're inconsistent in some area of your life, we could list 50 areas, and you would just look at that and say, well, I'm very inconsistent here. Wherever you're inconsistent, you probably do not have a stake in the ground. You don't have a value. You don't have something that really drives your life every time. No matter what the circumstance or the atmosphere of the situation, you have consistency in life because you have a value. There are seven governing values. I'm not going to go through this slide again about governing value and personal core values, and I don't have the time to do it, but seven core values uh, that that are governing values for your life. These would be, for me, the non-negotiables of Scripture. One is that I actually have a value about this Bible. I gave you a message on that already. It's worth listening to again. Two is that I realize I have to change. Life transformation, we're talking about that right now. I have to change. I can't stay the same. Three 
is that I need to understand, and, and you're gonna, I think, really enjoy this message next weekend. I've already written it on the God of the scriptures, on the God of the scriptures, because I've researched it enough to know that in America, there's a lot of views about God, and it's very interesting. So don't miss that message, and also it'd be a great message to bring anybody to church who's actually asking questions about who is God, where is God, what is God like? Well, what is the God of the scripture? He's a very significant God that is very detailed in scripture for the gospel. Can't live life without the gospel. And yet the gospel is something that can be misconstrued, misunderstood, but it's a core value. My life is based on the gospel, not only that I have, but what I give to other people. Uh, five, the mission. Every person should have it, understand it. Even if you don't have it in your personal life, there is a mission that God has given you that you might not be aware of. We'll talk about that. The church, which is uh, what Christ died for, very important, core value. And seven, biblical relationships that have certain perimeters, boundary lines, definitions. You cannot relate any way you want with anybody you want, however it feels. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible is very clear about relationships, how you build your life on relationships. If you have values in those seven areas, you will have a consistent life. Life transformation. Okay, let's talk about it again. I started last weekend. We're going to try to wrap it up this weekend. Life transformation means what? Life transformation brings freedom from sinful, destructive habits, rigid legalism, hopelessness, rebuilds and restores broken lives. All right. I understand that salvation is a time, place, event. That is, I should know when I got saved. I should know when I accepted Christ, Christ came into my life. I should understand the word repent, turn a different direction, follow God. Now, I should understand and be able to look back at some point in my life. If I can't, that's a problem in itself. But usually, most people can, even if they can't hardly remember they were so young, they can still draw out of that, that time where they uh, finally turned to Christ. And maybe as a young person, that became more and more clear to you. The older you get, the event maybe is something that's more uh, emotional, spiritual, and, and a change event. It just depends on when that event happens. But once the event happens, called salvation, I actually accept Christ, I turn my life and head toward that direction. I begin to align my life to Jesus and the Bible and the Holy Spirit and all the things that I begin to learn about. I also understand that that event does not make me totally sinless. The event itself does not mark me as a person who has no sinful habits. I still am me. Even though I'm saved, I'm me. And me can be a me mess. A big mess, a small mess, little messes. A me can be habits, habits I don't want, habits that have hurt me in the past. Habits that even though at the altar I cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, come into my life, save me, forgive me of all my sin, break all my habits, let me go forward with a new nature, and, and Jesus says, I will do that. But that event does not equal transformation. Transformation is a process. And that process has to be understood. Are you going to become very discouraged or very lazy? One of the two. You, you might 
not like the process because it's too slow or you don't even want to work with it because you're not really convinced you have to let go of all the junk of the past. For your good, you should let it go. So we're talking about life transformation from destructive habits and from rigid legalism. Rigid uh, legalism is maybe something you don't understand even in your own concepts, but it is something that can drive your life the wrong way if you don't understand what I'm going to talk about this morning, which I think is very important, grace and truth. All right, John 1.14. If you have a Bible, you can mark the scripture. I'm going to move right through this. Really, John 1, verse 1 through verse 14, the 14 verses of John that he starts with, are worth memorizing, meditating on, and reading over and over again because John lays out quite a theological statement in the first 14 verses of the Gospel of John. I'm just reaching in and I'm grabbing out this one verse because this is our text. Now the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only, full, say the word full, of grace, and truth. He's full, not half full of grace and half truth so that you get one full. He's full grace, full truth, not half and half. So when you come to Christ, you come to this definition of Christ. When God manifested himself, he took on flesh, he became man. We understand that. Incarnation, God became man. Human nature, divine nature, merged together, deity, humanity. We have the one nature of Christ. Very important theologically to understand that the deity, humanity thing, the, the two natures are merged together and they form what John 1.14 calls the word of God resident amongst us, manifested through Jesus Christ. He tabernacled. That's a word they would have understood from the Old Testament, from Moses, that he, he tabernacled and the same glory that came down upon the tabernacle of Moses is now upon the Lord Jesus Christ who is now the tabernacle and he's the new word amongst us, but different than the law of Moses, because under the law, even though the tabernacle was there and the glory came, they had to come through all kinds of sacrifices and they were under the law. Anything you do wrong, you would have to fulfill the law. And if you couldn't fulfill the law, you'd have to pay for the law. That's why there was animal sacrifices for every part of your life that you would bring to the tabernacle and ask forgiveness for this and forgiveness for that. So what John is saying in John chapter one is huge for the people listening to him because they're just fresh out of Moses. They're just fresh. They're one inch away from the 1,500 years of the law of Moses. They're just right there. Every temple, everything they do around uh, their life is the Moses scenario. It's the law. It's the sacrifice. There has been no Messiah yet. John is now just talking about who this Jesus is, and it's right there in their mind. They understand that the law of Moses and the glory of God, the tabernacle of the Old Testament, and, and he's going to actually say that in these verses. He actually refers to Moses and the law and the old, and then he's coming back to say, now Jesus is now manifested and the difference, the huge difference between Jesus and Moses is what? Law, grace. That's the huge difference. Under the law is works. Under grace is reception. It's not works. And so John brings this concept in a, in a deep way and just a very open way to say, we have something new here. His name is Jesus. 
And Jesus brings something that you better understand. This is what he brings into your life. It's grace and truth. Now, I'm talking about life transformation, and I'm talking about these two words that John talks about. I said last week, um, this formula, grace plus truth plus time equals transformation. If you leave one of the three out, you'll be frustrated. And you might not experience the kind of change that you want. You cannot change by grace alone. The Bible doesn't know anything about that. You cannot change by truth alone. The Bible knows nothing about that. You cannot change on your own timing. It's a process. So grace, got to understand it, plus truth, because that's what Jesus brought, plus time equals transformation. Why? We're a work in progress. There have to be necessary things done in us and with us. It's the caterpillar, as we referred to, to the butterfly. As a caterpillar, I can't imagine what a butterfly feels like. I can't imagine what wings feel like. But the difference between you not being transformed and being transformed is staying as a caterpillar or becoming a butterfly. And so you have to see your life as something totally different than what you are. And that is what Jesus has for you. He wants to change you into someone totally different than you've ever been in your past or can even imagine that you can become. We begin to define ourselves by the process, the slowness of the process sometimes so that we don't see enough change so that we buy into a certain part of the process and say, this is all I can become. This is all I will be. I am changing so slow. There's not enough years in life for me to be like Jesus. I will never totally be able to kick that habit or, or that part of my personality. I'm just going to buy into it. That, that would be wrong. That would be a wrong attitude to have because grace plus truth plus time and God's time, he keeps working on you right up until the day you die or the day you go right up straight to heaven to be with Jesus in the second coming. You will be worked on until the very last second before you leave here. How you respond to grace and truth will determine the depth of your transformation. You can choose to be a shallow changer. You can choose to be a person who doesn't change. You can choose to stay the same way you are, except you have heaven and not hell, and that you do have a specific love for God, but you're not going to change your anger or your lust or your, start naming all the works of the flesh from Galatians 5 and other places. You're just not going to do it. You're going to be who you are, and you know that it's enough for you to get by, but you really don't want to take on this thing called live like Jesus and become like Jesus. It just is massive. It's a massive change. I don't think I can do it. You can do it. You should do it, and that's what Jesus has for you. He wants you to look like him. That's a big order. For you to look like Jesus, live like Jesus, talk like Jesus, think like Jesus, love like Jesus, share your life like Jesus. Well, there's a specific definition in Scripture for that kind of person. That's the person Jesus wants you to be. We're a long ways from being that person most of the time, but I'm here to encourage you. You can be that person. All right, here's another Scripture, John 1.17. For the law, for the law, was given through Moses. But grace and truth, now here's, verse 17 is really the summary of all the 16 scriptures up to this point. Now he just drops it on them just in case they missed it. He says, now remember, law came through Moses. Everyone knows Moses. 
Everyone goes to the Sabbath and reads Moses' scriptures, and they know Moses' law and Moses' works. The, the whole land was built on Moses. So he says, you know, Moses brought law. You know that. Yes, I know that. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. All right, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's lay it out. Here's a scale that puts these in comparison, but not in contradiction. All right? In comparison, but not contradiction. Because we need both. But you must understand both. Well, grace is what I'm most comfortable with because I like the nature of grace. Unlimited grace. Amazing, undeserved. But it should be truthful grace. But anytime I touch on grace as a speaker, preacher, prayer, encourager, counselor, altar worker, small group leader, youth leader, wherever I'm, as soon as I touch on grace, people feel better about themselves, and they should. Grace is what? Unmerited favor of God toward people. Well, I want that. Unmerited. I, I don't deserve it. Okay, I understand that. It's the unconditional love and acceptance that God brings to you. This is the grace that the Bible talks about. And it's delicious. It's wonderful. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's unlimited. It's mind-boggling. You can't even explain it. The Apostle Paul had a hard time explaining it. Grace is so amazing to us. It's not something that feels right, but we know it is right. I don't earn it, but I get it. I don't deserve God's love, but it comes my way. He should judge me, but he doesn't judge me. He can't judge me based on the cross. He's already judged me, and so I'm hidden in something that it doesn't make sense. I should feel worse about myself, but I should feel better. Grace is mind-boggling. Grace is delightful. It has a fragrance to it. In 2 Corinthians 2.16, Paul uses a very unusual way to talk about the gospel. He says, to the one, he says, I'm like the smell of death. And to the other, I'm like a fragrance of life. What a weird way to talk to people about your conversation. He says, you know, I have an aroma about me. And to some people, it's death. That's what they smell. To some people, it's life. That's what I bring to them. When it comes to the aroma of the gospel, the aroma that we walk with, the, the smell of our life, that we actually have a fragrance that, you know, our perfume, our aftershave, we're big on how we smell. We want to smell good all the time. In Christianity, sometimes we don't smell very good because we get the truth mixed up. And so what we present to the world doesn't smell good to them. It smells like death. It doesn't smell like life. It smells like something they want to get away from. They don't want to embrace it. It is not the aroma that brings them close to God. It pushes them away from God. It's something that is so religious they can't put their mind around because of how we present things to them. Well, grace by itself is the most accepting thing for people that are outside of Christ. It's, it's, it's intriguing. It's attract, attracting. It's, it, it, it dazzles people's thinking. It is the most amazing thing. Now, if I could just preach, teach, counsel, and tell people grace is what you need. That's it. I would have an easier time explaining Jesus to everybody, but it wouldn't be true. And so I have to somehow do something with the aroma that I bring to people and the aroma that has been brought to me through the cross. 
And I have to actually package the message with the right ingredients so that the aroma is pleasing to God. It's an aroma that is pleasing to God. It's a sweet-smelling sacrifice. The gospel I present is an aroma that God smells and says, that is a sweet-smelling sacrifice you're bringing. I like that aroma. How do we do that if we leave half of it out? Grace, now listen carefully. Grace without truth breeds moral indifference. Grace without truth breeds moral indifference and keeps people from seeing their need for Christ. This is the problem if grace does not have truth. It breeds something that is not what God wanted to happen. And it's not even what Jesus himself brought in his own life. He actually married and merged grace and truth so that when you met him, you met both at the same time. His life represented that. He never, ever sacrificed one for the other. So people could see their need. If grace somehow packages the gospel without truth, it's because we want to what? We want to soften the gospel. That's why we do it. I want to soften it. It's just a little too much of a punch in the face. I'm going to soften the gospel. Really? Do I have a right to soften the gospel? No. But my friends react. The world reacts. Religiosity doesn't smell good. The church certainly doesn't have a good rap on this. We're known to be legalistic. We're known to be judgmental. We're known to be critical. People think that the church is just like the Republican Party. That's how we think. That's how we, you know, we have a certain bend on what is truth and what is right. If you're not in, not saying the Republican Party doesn't have grace. I'm just saying it stands for truth. And anybody that does that, especially the church, when that happens, people react to the church. And sometimes their reaction is not to the message. It's to the aroma, the attitude of the message we bring. It's not actually the message itself. But it's Christians that become, well, they only work the other side. Truth. Okay, truth is absolute. Of course it is. No argument there. Truth cannot be bent. No, you can try to bend it, but it'll bend you. You can't bend truth. Truth, you have to embrace it. But it's sometimes difficult to embrace. Sometimes difficult. We, we would like to have a thing called gracious truth and truthful grace. I put those two down because that is where I think the, the real tension is. How to have truthful grace and how to have gracious truth. Now, Jesus was full of grace and truth but when he met a person like the woman at the well or, or, or you start naming the people that Jesus dealt with, he told them the gracious truth instead of the rigid truth. He gave them the gracious truth. Are you married? No. Well, where's your husband? I, I don't have one. What about the last five men you had? You know about them? Yeah, I do. 
Why, why are you saying this? Because you know really what your problem is? It's not the men. You are thirsting for something that those men can't give you. What is Jesus doing? He's telling her the truth in a gracious way. He actually leads her to the place where she wants the truth because of the grace that is wrapped in. Jesus could have said, you know, woman, you're an immoral wreck. You're an embarrassment to your village. You've broken all the laws of Moses. You should be dead. And really, everyone is still under the law of Moses. Nobody is outside of the law of Moses at this point because Jesus Christ has not died on the cross and risen from the dead and established a new order. Everyone is still under the law. But Jesus doesn't refer to Moses. He refers to her heart being broken and the thirstiness in her soul. Why? Grace goes to the root of the problem, not the symptom. Law goes to the symptom and doesn't give a rip about the root. And so you argue about acts and works and behaviors and all the things that are symptoms, but you don't go to the root of the broken heart. When you go to the root, you have a different feel for the person. Grace and truth. Well, truth is what is real. You can't change that. Truth is truth. The Bible is the Bible. Jesus is Jesus and truth is truth. I can't change that can't change it. Truth describes things, and this is hard, as they really are. Not as I want them to be, not as I wish them to be. Truth just says, this is the way it is. Sorry. That hurts. Well, that's why grace is so important. Truth points to my behavior and says, there's something wrong there, Frank. Grace doesn't lie to you and say there's nothing wrong with you. Grace says there's something wrong with you, but I can change you. Truth points out what is wrong. Grace gives the motivation to change it. Without the two, you lean toward legalism, you lean toward works, you lean toward guilt, shame, and give it all up because I can't change myself. You're right, you can't. But truth can't be thrown out. Truth, absolutes of God in the Word. Truth now, here's another statement you probably should write this one down for sure. Truth breeds, truth without grace breeds what? Self-righteous legalism. Truth without grace breeds a self-righteous legalism. What does that do? It poisons the church. It poisons the heart of the Christian. It poisons our perspective. It Truth without grace poisons the church with a righteous legalism, pushes the world away from Christ. What does truth without grace do to the gospel? Toughen the gospel. What does grace without truth do? Tries to soften the gospel. Neither way will get us the results that we want, which is a changed life. You cannot soften the gospel and you cannot toughen the gospel. The gospel with grace and truth is a delicious thing if it's served in the right manner. And truth is received. And grace is filled with the truth. All right. Jesus, full of grace and truth, transforms us. Jesus, full of grace, first of all, that transforms us. Romans 6.14. 
For sin, now obviously we're talking here, Romans 6.14, not about a pre-cross person, a post-cross person, as you found Christ now. The, the book of Romans is written to people that have now pursued, found Christ, and they're trying to walk it out. That's what the book of Romans is all about. Romans 6.14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. How many can say a big amen to that? Well, that's huge news, and I want to hear that. For you are not under the law, but under grace. All right, so I'm not under law, works, just trying to correct my behavior. I'm under grace that corrects my roots so that my behavior will follow my surrendering. Paul's writings of the law, when he talks about law versus grace, is the book of Galatians. If you want to read what I'm talking about in a doctrinal way, read the book of Galatians or read the book of Romans, especially the first eight chapters, that deals with this. Book of Galatians, the whole book deals with it. When Paul talks about law and grace, he talks about the law principle of approach to Christianity, to Christ to change, to anything. He talks about the law principle of approach to God, and he, he points this out in Galatians. The law fails. Why? Because it works on the flesh. It works on the weakness of the flesh, and the weakness of the flesh does not have enough power to change itself into what Jesus wants. And so you end up being a person under condemnation and guilt and shame and all that because you don't know how to change. And a lot of Christians get caught in this, and they go back to works and back to behaviors that really are not going to change them because they don't understand law and they don't understand grace. They don't know which one they're living under. Paul says the weakness of the flesh is a problem. The will... Your will, my will, is too far enslaved for it to yield spontaneously to the majesty of the lawgiver. My will is enslaved in case by this thing called the flesh and the carnal mind, the carnal ways that I have. I can't even feel that attracted to the behavior changes I need. I, I don't even know what to do with the feelings I have about what I, what I feel like right now because of my failures. In Romans 7, Paul talks about that. So he says, now grace comes in, and the difference between law and grace is huge. It would take a series of 10 messages just on that great subject. But the major difference is law is outside of you, and grace is inside of you. That's the major difference. Law is external. Don't do that. If you do it, you're a dead man, dead woman. Don't steal. Do not kill. Do not put another God in front of me. Do not. The law is very, very clear about what you don't do. The only problem with the law, it can't get inside of you to help you not do the things you're not supposed to do. So Jesus comes along and says, okay, it's a new day now. I'm going to get inside of you, and I'm going to transform you from the inside out, starting with grace, all right? Now, Jesus is full of grace, and Jesus is full of truth, the two that we're talking about. Jesus is full of truth. John 8, 32, the same John that writes this great theological treaty in the verse First 16 verses of John 1. Never think that the Apostle John, the beloved, and all the, the feelings he had about Jesus, and, you know, he's not like a Paul. John was very much theological, and John writes things that other people never said at all in his epistles and in the gospel. Thank God for John. In John 8, 32, he says, And you shall know the truth, 
and the truth shall make you free. Wow. He's come a long ways from John 1, 16, 17. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except through, no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only way that you will find freedom is in me, the truth. So John says there is no freedom without you facing the truth. Jesus is the person who comes as the truth. He, he fixes the demand for the sacrifice. He does what he's supposed to do with the cross. And then he brings to us this reality. And this is part of the transformation that we're talking about here. Truth brings us to the reality of what? Facing ourselves. I've said all that theologically, biblically, conceptually to kind of come back to you have to face yourself. Truth brings you to yourself. The real self. The real you. The real needs. Grace will help you make those changes, but truth is the mirror. Truth is what you look at. Truth is what will set you free. Truth is coming to grips with who you are. Grace reminds us that we are all in some condition of shortcoming. Yes, failure, faults, fears, sinful habits. Grace reminds us, you know, you have shortcomings. Yes, I can help you fix them. Appreciate that, I need that. Truth says, here are the shortcomings. Truth says, that's a lie. Truth says, that behavior has to go. Truth says, these are the things that Jesus wants to change in your life. Take a look at yourself. You cannot be free without truth. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? Your goal is to live righteously, holy, like Jesus. Your goal is not to live under the carnal man, the carnal nature, the past habits. Your goal is not to let that have rule over you. It doesn't matter how many generations you've had with the same problems. Your goal is not to have that. Your goal is to live free from within. Now, let me take it to the last thought here. We need full grace and full truth. We can't change. Um, I'm going to have to pass that one up. I mean, I, I hope you still change. Okay. How many are enjoying the thought process? How many are thinking, thinking with me and identifying, I might be living a little under the law. Anybody out there live under the law a little bit? I might be living one-sided, grace only, don't raise your hand. Truth only, don't raise your hand. Life transformation is possible for every one of us. Here's some things you can do right now to make sure the life transformation happens. Number one, come to Jesus with honesty and faith. Come to Jesus with honesty and faith. Don't hide. Don't lie. Don't slide to the left or right. You don't have to. 
He wants you to bring yourself to him. Romans talks about a lot. The book of Hebrews is another great book. Hebrews 4, 13 through 16 is a fantastic passage for what I'm saying with point number one. Hebrews 4, 13 through 16, message translation says this. Come to Jesus. How do you come to Jesus? With honesty about yourself. Nothing, this is what Hebrews 4.13 following. Nothing and no one is impervious to God's word. We can't get away from it no matter what. The high priest who cried out in pain, now that we know what we have, Jesus, this great high priest with ready access to God, let's not let it slip through our fingers. This is what he says. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing He experienced it all without sin. So let's walk right up to him, get what he is so ready to give, take the mercy, accept the help, come to the throne of grace. Hebrews is trying to explain to us, Jesus knows how you feel. He knows what you face. He knows what temptation is like. He knows what it's like to have a friend hurt you. He knows what it's like to suffer and feel pain. Jesus being the high priest, he says to us, now listen, when when you come to me, don't hide anything. When you come to me, you don't have to make excuses. When you come to me, don't compare yourself to other people or situations. When you come to me, just say, Like the man in the parable. God be merciful to me for I am a sinner. The other man came to the temple and made all kinds of excuses and words about who he was and what he did. But the one man who just got blatantly honest, I need help. I am a sinner and I don't know what to do. And Jesus said to his disciples, which one of those left the temple reconciled? Jesus said, It's the man beating his chest saying, help, I'm a sinner. I don't know what to do. Jesus says, I like you. That's exactly the kind of prayers I answer. Not the ones that come up to the temple and say, you know, there were times in my past where I was a victim of my sin. And because of my upbringing and the confusion of what happened, There's things I do I don't understand. There's things I do that I don't like to do, but I do them, and I know it's not my fault. I have to shift some of the blame to my dad. My dad was so bad and so abusive, and the things he did, he really ruined my personality. He ruined the root of my life. My destiny has really been somewhat uh, changed because of my upbringing or because of my husband or because of my brother, my uncle, my whoever it might be. I mean, you can forever make excuses about everything about you, but Jesus says, when you come, just say it. I have problems. Don't blame anybody. Don't use other people's name. Don't go to other people's family trees. Just be honest about who you are. Don't be defensive. All right, number two. Come to Jesus knowing you can't change yourself. Wow. Huge thing for me to get. 
into my spirit. I can't change myself. Lecrae, I doubt if you listen to Lecrae. Anybody here listen to Lecrae? They are the best rap group when it comes to their words. Oh my goodness, modern day theologians. These guys got it. Here's one song I listened to yesterday several times. I stumbled onto it when I was doing my work, so I YouTubed them. And so I ended up turning it louder and louder. And just, I was, I practiced so that I could rap it to you today. But I just didn't know if I wanted to step over that line and reveal to you hidden talents that I have. So I decided not. But in the song, I have the full lyrics, which is, again, my time is gone and I can't do that. But I love the one part of the one verse where the, the song is, take me as I am. It is an unbelievable, biblically right song in today's language. Take me as I am. The one piece of the one chorus part is, I can't change on my own. Trying to make it alone. Will you take me as I am? I know that my life is so ugly. I can't believe what I've done. But I can't change on my own. Will you take me as I am? Man, that right there is grace and truth. That's what that is. Saying, hey, I can't do it on my own. And my life is ugly. I don't know what to do with all the pieces, but will you take me the way I am and then change me? Or do you want me to try to change before you will take me the way I am? Well, grace takes you the way you are and truth won't let you stay there. You'll change, but you have to bring who you are right now, every piece of it. Not be embarrassed, not try to make excuses. Wow. Number three, come to Jesus, trust in his love for you. Remember that God's love for you is mind-boggling. And he loves you with, as the scripture says, an everlasting love. Four, come to Jesus facing the truth about you. I simply go a little deeper about this one thing. Come to Jesus facing the truth about you. Psalms 51 says, I want truth, and I want that truth that comes from inside of you. I want to know what's inside of you. That's what David says. The whole psalm's about that. David moved from law to grace. Psalm 51 is David's revelation of grace and truth together. Psalm 51 is the best grace-truth psalm you can read, where David says, I admit it, but now what I need is I need truth on the inside. I need something to come from inside of me. The only limit to healing your total life is the degree to which you want to reveal totally and honestly who you are. That depth of revelation will be the depth of your change. I like what Michael Hyatt says. Anybody here read Michael Hyatt? Michael Hyatt is the best blogger and thinker in the business leadership world that exists today in the 21st century. That's my take on Michael Hyatt. Michael Hyatt says this, many people have a love-hate relationship with truth. We tell ourselves we want to know the truth, 
but we're very selective about the kind of truth we seek. We really like the truth about others. <laughs> I thought that was very good. But. Okay, last point. And you guys are going to do a song, right? Number five, come to Jesus rejecting all the lies of the devil. The devil will always twist the truth. Meaning, when you try to get honest with Jesus, the devil will say, he won't, he won't forgive that. He doesn't like that. You should feel worse about that. The devil, in the atmosphere of grace and truth, he's the twister of truth, and he's the hider of grace. He doesn't want you to discover honesty, transparency, and a new way of approaching Jesus in your life. He doesn't want you to do that. So he's going to take the condemnation route every time. He's going to take the guilt route every time. He's going to twist it so that even when you say it out loud, he'll come back and say, and how can you worship in church when you're like that? How can you lift your hands and sing songs when you know what your hands were doing just last night? How, how can you actually act like the way you act when you know you are so bad with so many things in your life. He will twist truth to make you feel you can't be honest with Jesus and you can't change it because you have to hide it or you have to excuse it. Just say to the devil, I know you're a liar. Bible says you're a liar and I think you're a liar and I'm not going to believe anything you say. Matter of fact, everything you say, I'm going to believe the opposite and then I'll get closer to the truth. So if you want to tell me all these lies, go ahead. But I'm just, you have to at some point stop all the chatter of the devil in your ear and get back to grace, truth, and change. Can I hear an amen? amen. All right. How many feel more comfortable with change? How many feel you have a couple things you need to change? How many have more than a couple? Maybe a couple dozen. Yeah, well, we all do. Come on, stand to your feet. What are we doing? Um, Lord, I need you. Is that what we're doing? Well, that's appropriate. I don't know about you, but I do know about you. I think I'm very happy that Jesus loved me the way I am. I'm very happy He's committed to not letting me stay this way. I'm very happy that I can tell Jesus the truth and he doesn't go, what did you say? Frank, when did you do that? I mean, Jesus isn't shocked by your confession. Oh, go get Pope Francis. He's the only one that can hide this. Jesus is not shocked at you. Just be honest, open up. Spread your hand toward heaven with me. Let's sing this little song as a confession. Come on, Lord, I need you.